Thanks for checking out the Lakeshore Podcast. If this is your first time listening with us, we want you to know God loves you. We want for your hope in Jesus to be renewed and for your faith to come to life. Wherever you are joining us from, we hope this message encourages you. That we're calling I've Got Questions. I've Got Questions. And the subtitle, if I've never mentioned it to the whole series, it's worth listening to. The subtitle is How to Reconcile God's Absolute Truth in Today's Postmodern Culture. Now, if you don't know what postmodern means, that's okay. I'm going to give us a brief description as we get started here. But our theme verse has been 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Just a little bit of review to catch us all up. Paul's writing to Timothy, and the Bible says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits, And doctrines of demons. Think about that. Deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Paul is saying that the Holy Spirit showed him that as we get closer and closer to the ultimate and final return of Christ and God wrapping all this up as we know it today, that there's going to be some people that are in the faith, some people that are Christians, that will depart from the faith. It doesn't mean that they woke up one day and they just rejected Jesus, but little by little by little, there was a drift. Like I I gave you a description, like I like fishing, and I've done a lot of fishing in a little boat. I'd be out in a pond and fishing. It's a small boat. It's a small pond, and I don't use an anchor, and I start fishing in the boat in this spot, but after 30 minutes to an hour, I drifted. Because I wasn't anchored, I drifted, and the place that I ended up fishing was not the place where I started fishing. That's what this means. Some will depart, they'll drift little by little from the faith, meaning they're just going to give up on their relationship with God. How does it happen? He says because they gave into what the Bible calls deceiving spirits. Those are spirits of darkness. Those are spirits from the kingdom of darkness. Those are demonic spirits who have an agenda in churches, And in our culture, to bring deception to people, especially Christians, to get them to turn from their faith. And then he says, to be a little clearer, they're going to bring doctrines. Doctrines are teachings of demons. Like these demonic, dark teachings, they may not appear like that on the surface level, but they're constructed and crafted in the pits of hell and in the darkness kingdom. Right? And we see those today. I don't know if you realize this, but they're in churches, then they're in our culture. For example, just recently in the Queen City in Charlotte, there's about 200 Methodist churches that are pulling away from the Methodist denomination because the denomination has made a decision to not define marriage between a man and a woman any longer but to allow that to be defined between anybody who just wants to get married. Men with men, women with women, etc., etc., etc. Well, this is a problem for about 192, 200 churches in the Charlotte area, and they're saying, we can't go with that. So we're going to disconnect from the denomination 
so that we can stay with God's word and not buy into those doctrines of demons and deceiving spirits. So it's all over our culture. And the way that these deceiving spirits and these doctrines of demons are finding their way through our culture over time is through what we're calling modernism, postmodernism, and applied postmodernism. Real quickly, modernism simply, simply says, listen, times are more modern today. Times have changed. We're more progressive today. So we should be too. Our truth should be willing to adjust to the times and to catch up with the modern times that we're in. That's modernism. And then it goes a little further. Postmodernism, in addition to that frame of mind, postmodernism says not only do we need to adjust truth to fit today, but really there is no place for absolute truth in our culture today. There's just no absolute truth. Truth can be whatever you want it to be. That's postmodernism. And then it goes a step further to applied postmodernism. And applies most applied postmodernists think and say, listen, we actually have to destroy absolute truth. And we have to make people and the culture that we're living in believe and buy into our truth and the truth that we want to stand on. And that's where relativism comes in. Whatever's true for you is okay. Whatever's true for me is okay. We don't need any more Bible absolute truth in our culture today. Now, if you've been watching any of the news or you're paying any attention to any type of social media, you can see that this is happening loud and clear. Isn't that true? I think we can see it's happening loud and clear. Now, if you've missed any of the messages that we've had the last four or five weeks, we've started all of our messages with the title posed as a question. Week one, what, is the, what in the world is going on? Week two, can I really trust the Bible? And we gave five reasons why we can trust the scriptures. And Christians should be able to stand on a biblical argument for trusting the scriptures. Week three, we talked about how did the world begin? I skipped that one here because I felt led to go a different direction. But if you missed that one, you need to get it because we talk about the Genesis account, how God is the creator and the eternal sustainer of everything, and how in our educational system, our kids are being taught about the Big Bang Theory and evolution. And those are contradictory to the Genesis account of God being our creator. That's a doctrine of demons. So you got to catch that, parents, if you want to educate your kids according to the truth of the Scriptures. And week four, I talked about how will it all end, and we talked about the, the truth about life after death. So if you missed any of those, you can go back to our podcast and you can get them. Today, fresh material, keeping all of this stuff in the recesses of our mind, all of the different cultural craziness that's going on, I want to kind of pose this question. Does God have an eternal purpose in relationships? I want you to think about that in light of your relationships with each other if you're married or in light of your relationships with your kids if you have them. I also want you to think about that question in light of our relationships 
as the family of God because we have a covenant relationship as brothers and sisters in the Lord. Now, we all know that there's a lot of crazy things going on in our culture, and we all realize that circumstances in life change all the time. Sometimes circumstances are great. Sometimes circumstances are very, very challenging. We're all different in our areas of circumstances. And we also realize that there's a real enemy, and he's got a plan and a purpose for our lives just like God does, but for darkness and for bad things to happen. He's got a plan and a purpose for the lives of the kids and the family members in our families. And we also got to realize that he'll even use the pleasures of life the pleasures and the blessings of life that God gives us, He'll even use those to take us off of our spiritual game, so to speak, and distract us. And if we don't learn how to control those blessings and those things that we like to do, like fishing and vacation and family time away and sports and all of those things that are blessings and luxuries that we get to experience, if we don't learn how to keep those in a healthy place in our relationship with God, the enemy will even use those in our culture and our families today to get us off of the eternal purpose that God has in our relationships. The title of today's message, just if you want to know, is simply this. It's kind of long, but it's worth it. What is the eternal purpose in relationships? And I want to answer that question by first recognizing that all throughout the Scripture, God puts high importance on relationships. For example, in the Gospels, Barbara was just telling me this morning how many times just reading through John, Jesus refers to His relationship with the Heavenly Father. And all through the Gospels, we can see that Jesus refers to His relationship with the Father. And then Romans, in Romans 8.29, it says, and, and whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that's Jesus, right? And so that Jesus would be the firstborn, listen, among many brethren. Jesus is our elder brother. There's a relationship. I don't know if you ever knew that before, but Jesus is considered the firstborn among many brothers and sisters in the Lord. There's a relationship that we have with Jesus. In Ephesians, for example, chapter 5, the Apostle Paul talks about the relationship um, between... uh, No, he, he talks about how we're supposed to imitate God as dear children of God. And he, he talks about the relationship there. God's our Father. We're His children. And in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33, God talks about the relationship between a husband and a wife, and He compares it to the relationship between Christ and the church. There's a heavy emphasis on relationships. And then if you look at the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, Moses, through the instruction of God, He instructs parents in their relationship with their children to instruct them in the ways of God, in following God and walking with God. That's in the Old Testament. And then in Ephesians chapter 6, again, parents, you're supposed to bring your children up in the admonition and the fear and in walking with God. There's the relationship. And in Ephesians chapter 2, Outside of the biological relationship, he he clearly identifies that the church 
Together, we're members of the household of God. And that word household doesn't just mean building, it means family. So all of us have biological relationships, right? And all of us together in Christ have this spiritual relationship where we're members of one another. Now, I want you to keep all of that in mind because the question or the title is, what is the eternal purpose in relationships? And I want to answer this by looking at the life of an Old Testament man of God by the name of Joseph. Have you ever heard of Joseph before? Now, the story of Joseph is very interesting. You have to track with me, okay? And the story of Joseph really is kind of highlighted in three pairs of dreams. Joseph, when he was 17 years old, he had a dream. And in this dream, basically his brothers, his older brothers, would bow down to him. And he thought it would be a good idea to share that dream with his older brothers. Well, if you read the story, that wasn't such a great idea and it didn't turn out so good for him. He had another dream, and this time that dream included his own parents. And in that dream, how God was speaking to him, Joseph saw his own parents bowing down to him and paying homage to him. Well, he thought it would be a good idea to share that with his parents, and that wasn't such a great idea either. And if you follow the story, uh, shortly after that, his brothers, who already were jealous of him, and they hated him, because his dad favored him, they decided that they would toss Joseph in a pit, and they were just barely convinced not to kill him by one of the older brothers. And so what they decided to do, instead of killing him, they sold him to a bunch of people that were traveling by as a price, like as a slave. They sold Joseph into slavery, 17 years old, and then they went and they told Joseph's dad that he was eaten by a wild animal, and that was the end of Joseph. And then in Genesis chapter 39, Joseph is purchased as a slave from an Egyptian slave market by Potiphar. Potiphar was an officer in the king's court, in Pharaoh's court. And Joseph was soon promoted because of the favor of God in his life, as an overseer over Potiphar's house and all of Potiphar's affairs. But soon after that, if you follow the story, Joseph was falsely imprisoned on an attempted rape charge against Potiphar's wife. And so they threw him in prison, even though he was innocent. Now, dreams three and four, Joseph is in prison now. He's an overseer in prison. And he's promoted as an overseer. Here he has a second pair of dreams. And it shows up through the life of Pharaoh's former baker and butler. Pharaoh the king was angry with his baker and butler and threw them into prison. And Joseph was with them. And the butler and the baker had some disturbing dreams. And Joseph said, hey, God could interpret your dreams for you. And so God, through Joseph, interprets the dreams for the baker and the butler. Well, one of them is killed and one of them is released. Joseph was hoping that they would remember him, but they didn't. Two more years went by. And the interpretations, though, that Joseph had given proved to help him later. Joseph had another opportunity to interpret dreams because this time Pharaoh, the king, had some disturbing dreams. 
And the butler remembered Joseph in prison. So they said, hey, there's this guy who can interpret dreams. So Pharaoh had him brought up from prison, cleaned him up. He's standing before the king. And Joseph says, okay, God show me the interpretations for you. And here it is. You basically have two dreams, but both of the dreams have one meaning. Now listen, there will be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine, that will eat up all the surplus from the plentiful years. And Joseph told the Pharaoh this interpretation. And then he told him this, Pharaoh, wisdom says you should find someone who could strategically save during the plentiful years so that you have enough to sustain you during the years of famine. So those are the pairs of dreams that Joseph had and that God used Joseph in. Now, Genesis 41. Stay with me. Let's look at the Bible verses. Verses 37 through 41, and it'll be on the screen. Genesis 41, 37 through 41. So the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh the king and in all of his servants' eyes. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Listen, can we find such a one as this, as a man in whom is the Spirit of God? So Pharaoh recognized that there was a divine God of some kind working in Joseph's life that led him to give these wise interpretations. Verse 39, Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Are you following me so far? What a change from the pit to where he is now. Now, this is where we really got to lean in and pay close attention. Because if you're tracking with me, Joseph has gone from the pit to Potiphar to prison to power in the palace for Pharaoh. And right here, most people would say, well, this is the big payoff moment. This is the blessing. I mean, he's on top of the world. He's got everything that a man who was once a slave could ever possibly want. It's working on his behalf. But Joseph didn't think so. Why not? Because, listen, because Joseph knows that he's in relationships with people centered around God and God's kingdom. And to these people, God made some covenant promises, starting with Joseph's great-grandfather, Abraham. Has anybody ever heard of Abraham in the book of Genesis? And these promises that God made to his great-grandfather, Abraham, listen to me, they didn't focus on any of Abraham's descendants, that means Joseph, serving kings that were pagan and that worshipped other gods in a foreign country that didn't serve God. That wasn't God's covenant promise to Abraham for Joseph's life. Yet, if we're tracking, that's exactly what's happening right here. Joseph is now second in command to an ungodly king, Pharaoh, whose very existence 
is an insult before the true almighty God. And this insulting king who thinks that he himself is a God says to an actual child of the Most High God, Joseph, that God has made promises to, you are now my servant, empowered by your God to prop up my kingdom where I am God. This can't be the payoff for Joseph. Can you agree with that? This cannot be the blessing, the ultimate payoff that God has for Joseph. Let's continue Genesis 41 Verses 42 and 43. Stay with me. Listen. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring off of his hand and he put it on Joseph's hand. Now, his signet ring carried the one and only special marking that was used as a seal for the king's private letters and documents. The king gave this to Joseph. Joseph is carrying the authority of King Pharaoh. And he, the king, clothed Joseph in garments of fine linen. Now Joseph, he went from rags to riches. He's wearing the best clothes that anybody could ever want to wear. Notice this. And Pharaoh put a gold chain around his neck. Not only that, but he's got the finest jewelry as well. Verse 43 And Pharaoh had him ride in the second chariot which he had. And they cried out. And they, all the people in Egypt, cried out before Joseph, Bow the knee! So Pharaoh set him, Joseph, over all the land of Egypt. The Amplified Version says, And Joseph went out and he ruled over all the land of Egypt. Now, catch this with me. Where Joseph's special God-centered relationships and community, his own family and his own parents wouldn't receive him, wouldn't accept him, or the dreams that God had given him. Listen, now he has a whole city of ungodly people who worship other gods that respect him, that are paying homage to him, and that revere him. Joseph's got power. He's got wealth. He's got prestige. He's got popularity. He's gone from the pit to the palace. And he's got the complete trust and favor of the most powerful man in perhaps the whole world, King Pharaoh. But listen to me. This is what Joseph would say. Listen, important. I don't consider power, prestige, or wealth to be the payoff in life. Come on, say that with me. I don't consider power, prestige, or wealth to be the payoff in life. Why wouldn't Joseph feel that way? Because there was something more significant to Joseph. Now, now catch this with me. you got to understand. Joseph was Hebrew. Joseph grew up hearing about his great-grandfather Abraham. His grandfather Isaac. Learning from his father, Jacob. Those are the patriarchs of our faith in God. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. One of them was Joseph. That was a fruitful family. And Joseph grew up hearing about the promises of God and the promised land and the covenant relationship that God had with the people of God and the 
relationship that the people of God had with each other. He had to have been thinking about Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. This is God speaking to his great-grandfather, Abraham. God tells him, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you, Abraham, all the families through your lineage, through your relationships. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the covenant of God, the blessing of God was to bring blessing to other people, starting with their family relationships. So this wasn't the payoff for Joseph. He was thinking deeper, more significant. He was thinking eternal. He wasn't thinking power, prestige, wealth, notoriety, money, clothes, cars. He wasn't thinking that. Pastor Robert, are you sure? I mean, it would just, I mean, God would be okay if he was thinking that, wouldn't he? Well, let's keep reading Genesis 41, 45. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath Paniah. Now catch this. Now Joseph is given an Egyptian name. How do you think that fit with him? He's Hebrew. And Pharaoh gave Joseph a wife, Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, a priest, a priest of On. If you didn't catch it, catch this. Now, Pharaoh changed Joseph's Hebrew name to an Egyptian name. And he gave Joseph, who's Hebrew, an Egyptian wife, who has a dad, who's now Joseph's father-in-law, who is a priest for a foreign god. How do you think that fit for Joseph? So, so he can go deeper into Egyptian culture. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. Now, if you haven't caught this, catch this. He's still a slave. He's servant to Pharaoh. He's not free. Even though he's experiencing all this. Genesis 41, 50 through 52. Let's stay with the story. And to Joseph, listen, were born two sons before the years of famine came, whom his wife, the daughter of the priest of On, bore to him. Verse 51, catch this. Joseph called the name of the firstborn son Manasseh, for God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. And the name of the second son he called Ephraim, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Now, catch this. I just want to point out a couple of things that are worth noticing. Although Joseph was one of the most powerful men in Egypt, married to one of the most influential families in Egypt, he gave his sons Hebrew names, not Egyptian names. In other words, Joseph is saying to everyone who's paying attention, I do not consider myself an Egyptian. I do not consider my family to be Egyptian. 
I'm a Hebrew and I'm a member of God's special chosen people. Can you say amen? That's what's happening in Joseph's heart. Now, Manasseh. It's a, it's a difficult Hebrew name to translate, but scholars are agreed. Bible scholars are agreed that the name does not mean I have forgotten that I belong to my father's house. It means I've forgotten all the hardship I experienced in my father's house that led me to this place. How I many you know he had hardship in his family? His brothers didn't receive him. His brothers hated him. His brothers were jealous. His brothers sold him into slavery. His brothers lied to his dad about him, said he was eaten by a wild animal, and he was just gone. I mean, no, that broke the father's heart. Manasseh means, listen, I let all that stuff go. I let it go. I choose not to define my life by the difficulties that I've encountered up to this point in my journey with God. So what did Joseph focus on? That brings us to his second-born son, Ephraim. Ephraim means God has made me fruitful and prospered me in the land of my affliction. Now, I looked up this word affliction. You probably know what it means, but I like to look up words so that I can really get it. The word affliction literally in the Hebrew means trouble, misery, and poverty. What? I mean, how could the guy say he's in poverty? How could that guy be miserable? Power, prestige, notoriety, second in command. He's got the nicest car, finest jewelry, finest clothes. He's married into influence. How could he describe the place where he's at as a land of affliction? I mean, Joseph... Through Ephraim's name, he he gives thanks to God for the mercy and favor and blessings that God has given him. But he still calls the land of Egypt the land of his affliction. Some might say, but Joseph, you're rich there. Joseph says, it's the land of my affliction. Some might say, Joseph, but they love you there. But Joseph says, yeah, but this is the land of my affliction. Others might say, Joseph, why? Why? Why have that perspective? Here's the second point I want to make. Because Joseph would say, I'm living for something more significant than success by the world's standards. Well, if success wasn't Joseph's payoff moment, because he was successful. What is the story of Joseph trying to teach us? Now, I believe there's, there's a lot of truth in this story. But one of the things that the story is trying to teach us is discovered in Genesis 45 verses 1 through 4. Now, before I read it, let me just remind you, there's a famine in the land. After the seven years of plentiful Joseph stored things up, but now there's a famine. There's no water, there's no food, there's no resources. Eventually, that impacts Joseph's brothers and his family. And they have to go to buy food from Egypt, not knowing they have to go and buy it from, guess who? 
Joseph. When Joseph saw his brothers that threw him in a pit, that sold him into slavery, that told his daddy was dead, eaten by wild animals, when Joseph saw his brothers, he immediately recognized him. But they didn't recognize Joseph. He knew who they were. Can you imagine the emotions that were going through him when he saw them? Let's look at Genesis 45, 1 through 4, where Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out. So catch this. Joseph's brothers are in a big room, and all kinds of Egyptian people are in the room, and they're coming to him to buy grain and buy food. Joseph's second in command. He's the governor. He's walking with the authority of the king. He makes everyone flee from him and go out of the room except his brothers. And no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud. And the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? For they couldn't answer him because they were dismayed in his presence. That word dismayed, dismayed means frozen in fear and they were frightened to move. Can you imagine? I mean, Joseph's, I'm Joseph, your brother. Is my dad still alive? He's weeping. And the brothers are like this. They can't move. They're frozen. And then Joseph said to his brothers, please come near to me. So they came near. Then again, he had to say, because they couldn't believe it. I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. And they're probably thinking, we know you're the one we wanted to murder, but instead we sold into slavery. We know you're the one we didn't want to bow down to before, but now we've been bowing before ever since we came to Egypt. We know you're the one we didn't think much of, but now God has made you great. Second in command. You're the one we thought God gave too much favor to from our father. But now God has highly favored you before the most powerful man in the world. The king. They were probably thinking, we know. You're the one who's about to kill us to avenge yourself. I mean, that's what normal human beings would probably think. And you're probably thinking, Pastor Robert, I mean, he was their brother. Would, would he think that way? I, I don't know, but I'm just going to be truthful. I've experienced some dysfunction in my family. Brothers and sisters who won't even speak to each other, who call the cops on each other, who get in fights with each other, who say things like, I'm going to kill you if you don't. Now, 
Your family might be perfect and you've never experienced that. Thank God for that. But there's a lot of dysfunction in families when the enemy gets in there. Isn't that true? There's a lot of dysfunction in families. And so they're probably thinking, we're done. Again, Genesis 45, 1 through 5. Listen, Joseph said to his brothers, please come near me. So they came near. Then he said, I'm Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Verse 5, pay attention. But now, do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you. Say these last three words with me. Come on. To preserve life. Do you see the forgiving spirit in Joseph? Hey, come on, don't, don't, be, don't be hard on yourself. I, I'm willing to forgive you. God had this unseen providential hand on my life and He sent me before you to preserve life. Here's a big point that I want to make, third point. Remember, we're answering the question. What is the eternal purpose of God in relationships. Here's the point. Joseph would say, God's eternal purpose in relationships is rescuing the people around me. Come on, say it with me. God's eternal purpose in relationships is rescuing the people around me. Look at Genesis 45, 7, verse 7. Joseph is speaking and he says, And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity, a remnant, so that you would go on and continue to have more family members, more children for you in the earth. Listen, and to save your lives by a great deliverance. God used Joseph to rescue and to redeem and to save and to deliver Joseph's family. Why would God do that? Because God made covenant promises to Joseph's great-grandfather Abraham hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before that God is faithful to bring to pass in his life. So God used Joseph. He set everything up so that Joseph could be used to rescue his family around him. That's powerful. Joseph says, God sent me here to rescue you, to save you, to preserve your life. Now, if you didn't know this, it's worth mentioning. There's numerous, numerous pictures of Joseph as a type of Jesus Christ. Just a couple of them. Joseph was a shepherd. Jesus Christ is our great Shepherd. Joseph was sold into slavery. Jesus was sold for the price of a slave. Joseph was tempted by Potiphar's wife, but didn't sin. Jesus was tempted and didn't sin ever. Joseph became the savior to many people. Jesus is the Savior of the whole world. Can somebody say amen? Anyone who receives him. Joseph had a heart to partner with God in rescuing 
his family members, in rescuing people, so should we. See, if we just think that our relationships with our family, biological and spiritual, are temporary, we're missing it. God has an eternal purpose and reason for our relationships. Pastor Robert, are you sure it's going to make a difference after all this is said and done? Well, I don't know if you remember this, but when I did the message about how will this all end, and we talked about heaven and hell, and the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man is in hell because he chose not to walk with God, and he tells Father Abraham, listen, Father Abraham, let me go back to my father's house, to my family, because I have brothers, and I want to warn them so that they don't have to come to this place either. I don't know if you remember that or not. So Lazarus went to heaven. The rich man is in hell, according to Jesus. And the rich man knows he's there. And he knows that his family, his relationships, haven't made a decision for God yet. And he wants someone to go back from the dead to convince them to do so. And I don't know if you remember what Abraham told him. He said, listen, they have all the pastors and all the preachers and all the prophets and they have the book. If they don't listen to them, even if a person came back from the dead and told them about Jesus, they're not going to listen to them either. So Pastor Robert, what's, what's the grand takeaway here? What's, what's the big, big takeaway? Here it is. God rescued Joseph in order to rescue you so that you can partner with God in rescuing others around you. Pastor Robert, I mean, Joseph is so far away from me. If you study the lineage out, that's where Jesus came from. And then Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then the gospel is spread. And then somewhere down the line in your life and in my life, someone shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with us and we accepted it and we became saved and we became family members of the household of God. So God rescued Joseph and in order for you to be saved, the lineage of Jesus had to come about and then when it did, you were rescued and now we're supposed to partner with God in rescuing our family members and people around us. Our relationships, in God's perspective, have eternal purpose. They're not temporary. They're not just for the short few, 70, 80, 90 years, if you're so fortunate to live. They have eternal ramifications. Amen. Have you been blessed by the word today? Come on, stand to your feet and let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of the scriptures. We realize there's a lot of crazy things going on in our culture. 
There's a lot of things that are trying to pull us away from the truth of the Word of God. And I pray right now a blessing over every person under the sound of my voice, whether they're here in person or they catch this later on Facebook. I pray that the Holy Spirit would help us to understand that there is an eternal purpose for our relationships. And if we're saved, if we've been rescued, if been redeemed, if we're growing in a relationship with God, you want us to partner with you in pointing our family members, both biological and spiritual, back to Jesus. You want us to be encouraging. You want us to be strengthening. You want us to be sharpening. And can I even say this, Lord? You want us to be lovingly challenging and holding one another accountable to stay with the truth of the Word of God. Father, I declare your blessing and your power and your grace over everyone in our household, everyone in our family. We thank you for all that you're doing in and through us. In Jesus' name, everyone said... Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for more messages. If you like what you're hearing, share it with your friends. For more content from Lakeshore and information on services, check us out at lakeshorecf.com.